0: Can you guys give Pastor Andrew a huge hand as he comes and gives the word? And Club 58 is going to go with Pastor Christy. They've got a service. That's for our 5th through 8th grade students. Uh, Thank you guys for worshiping with us. We love that the families get to worship together. Um, We know that sometimes uh, the whole service is a little bit long for those 5th through 8th graders. Attention spans... um, Aren't, maybe aren't as developed as some of our more mature uh, listeners, but we love that they get to worship alongside of us and that as parents we can teach them what it looks like to worship. And other times uh, they can teach us a thing or two about worship. I don't know if you've seen them, they go after the Lord in an incredible way. I love getting to be with them on Wednesday nights, and so they're dismissing now. Great. This morning um, I want to speak uh, to you all about honor. Um, The Lord had been putting it in my heart for the last couple of weeks, and then um, something that Pastor Mike and Pastor Christy hit on last week as they were sharing, uh, they talked about how we have this, oh, thank you. They talked about how we have this uh, tendency inside of the church to eat our own, to kind of... Uh, hurt the people that we should be loving the most. That there's, within church, there's a lot of times um, ample opportunity for offense. And whether that's from leadership to congregation members or um, just, you know, the body of believers themselves hurting or offending each other. And and so as the Lord had been speaking in my heart, and then uh, as Pastor Mike kind of gave uh, gave an opportunity for it, talking about this uh, this either this issue of honor and either the lack thereof or the opportunity to do it better, I thought, oh man, I know what I want to share about. So um, so this week we're going to be talking about honor. And I believe that honor is super important inside of the kingdom of God. We see from the beginning through the end, all throughout the Bible, that honor gets hit on again and again. and And from the beginning when God establishes his people— when he takes uh, the the Hebrews, the Israelites, out of Egypt, and says to them, "You're my special possession, and I'm going to create a covenant with you all," uh, he he sets up a lot of a lot of rules. And Sean, you, you did great, but uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna run with it from here. You're relieved, man. Thank you so. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Thank you. Thank you so much, man. Um. And so, so the Lord establishes, uh, as part of the covenant, the contract with his people, with the Israelites, his special possession. He says, I'm pulling you guys out. He says, you guys have to follow these, and it's like 600 plus laws, commands, regulations. There's a bunch, a bunch of them. But he says, if you do this, then I'll protect you, I'll provide for you, I'll care for you. We'll have this incredible relationship. He says, if you don't, it's not going to go well. And he gives them this opportunity to choose. Um, but the Lord, in his infinite wisdom, knew that the people wouldn't do great with 600 plus laws, commands, and regulations. So he condenses it down and he builds his top 10 list. And as the Lord presents this to him in, in Exodus, uh, he inscribes it uh, onto some stone tablets for Moses with his very hand. And, and in there, in this top 10 list of his commandments, the 10 commandments as we know, them, um, the first four have to do with how we are, are governing our relationship with God. So Rule number one, top ten, number one was don't have any other gods before God. And then he goes through these these other three that sort of um, give us understanding of how we're supposed to respond and relate to God. And then he transitions, and with rule number five, with the fifth commandment, he starts to to starts to create these rules for how we should interact with other people. And the very first one he does, number, number five in his top ten list, is honor your father and your mother. And so it's interesting that, that of all the different things, even before he gets to don't steal or don't murder, he starts with honor. And so I believe that honor is, is close to his heart. Now, over the next um, 1,500 years, people don't do so well with all those rules and regulations. Um, we see the, the history in the Old Testament that... The Israel, the Israelites, the people of, of God will go away from His commands, and then they'll recognize, "Oh, this isn't working out so well," and they'll turn their hearts back towards God, and they'll be like, "God, help us!" And He'll raise up someone that'll help them, and then and then they'll follow the rules for a little while, and then they sort of drift away from it, and back and forth, back and forth, until um, when Jesus comes, some like fifteen hundred-ish years later, uh, He He condenses those ten commandments, which people were were missing and not quite following, and he condenses them down to just two, and he says, okay, if you couldn't do the 600, and if you had a hard time with the 10, let's try just two, and he, so he tells them, love God and love others, and people are like, okay, I think you can do that, and as we, as we look at the idea of loving others, I think the concept or the notion of honor fits really neatly inside of that. I don't think anyone would disagree that, oh, well, no, like, if I'm loving other people, that's very different than honoring people. I think honor falls within that umbrella of love. But in case that it doesn't, uh, Jesus, he dies, and he's resurrected, and he ascends into heaven. He's now seated at the right hand of the Father. He's interceding for us, and he's established these 11 men to, um, to kind of uh, oversee and establish his church here on earth. And they're writing letters to the different regions and to the different churches, and they're giving them some instructions. They've, they've planted these churches, and they've started these churches, and on the, on the foundation of Jesus' teachings. And then at one point or another, they're missing it in an area. And so in the apostles' letters, we see again and again this uh, reiteration, this reminder to honor people. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter's writing to this church and he says, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And it's kind of interesting because I think sometimes we we do this where you know, love others, or love everyone, or love your neighbor. And, and even that, that time when Jesus was teaching that, someone in the crowd was like, yeah, but who is my neighbor? Is it literally just the people next to me? And he's like, no. And he tells this whole great story. So we're, we know we're supposed to love people. We see we're supposed to honor everyone. But Peter kind of knows the condition of our hearts. and He's like, and even honor the people that you disagree with. At the time, the emperor in his context, in his culture, wasn't someone that got elected and, by popular vote, and uh, it wasn't someone who was kind to Christians, he was actively persecuting Christians, and so Paul, or, uh, Peter is writing this letter to churches who are being persecuted, saying, hey, remember when I said everyone? I meant even the person that you disagree with, even the person who's trying to hurt you, even the person who's persecuting you, even those people. He continues on, and just a chapter later, we see in, in chapter 3, verse 7, he says, husbands, honor your wives, as if, like, when he was first addressing, hey, honor everyone, and they're like, okay, we'll honor everyone. But present company excluded. Like, not, not the people in this room. Like, we'll just honor everyone else. And so he goes back, and he's like, no, 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 husbands, honor your wives. And what's interesting, at the end of verse 7, it says, treat her as you should, so your prayers will not be hindered. And that's a really interesting, like, oh, okay. Like, you know, you've been praying for this thing for years, and you're like, oh, I'm... God's just not answering my prayers, and, it's, and, and Peter's there like, are you, are you treating your wife like you should? Are you honoring her as a part of when you're honoring everyone, or when you're honoring the king, are you even honoring your wife? So we see again and again, God the Father established it way back in the Old Covenant. We're supposed to honor, honoring especially our parents, and then as we move through the church history, it's reiterated again and again. First Peter in Romans, Paul writes to the, the church in Rome, and he says, love each other with genuine affection. And take delight in honoring each other. In order to take delight in honoring each other, you have to think about honor a little bit differently. Traditionally, what we do in just sort of a national, or sorry, a natural, logical, rational sense, uh, we honor people that that are honorable. Um, if someone is respectful or integral or kind or generous, we can use those as traits to say, "Oh, like they're deserving of honor, and then it's sort of easier to honor that person and and if you're if you're somewhat uh, endowed with the grace of the Holy Spirit, you can take a delight in honoring that person, but honoring everyone and honoring uh, people you disagree with or honoring someone that you are especially close with uh, in in close proximity, like when when Peter says to honor our wives, the people that we We wake up next to uh, when maybe teeth aren't brushed yet or hair isn't combed yet. Or they see us when we're hangry and we're frustrated or we're exhausted or the children have left the house a mess and dinner is burnt and things aren't going great and we're supposed to even honor them. Uh, It takes something different. And so when we are honoring someone who's dishonorable, when we're honoring someone who's not been uh, of high integrity, who's done things poorly, uh, who's offended us, um, that is different. It's hard to just take delight in that. Be like, oh, I can't wait to honor this guy who stabbed me in the back. Or I can't wait to honor Steve from accounting because he always sends me these nasty emails. You know, it's like, that's difficult. And so, um, and so what I think it takes is this shift in our mindset from honoring them because they deserve honor to honoring them because we are honorable. So because I carry honor I can give them honor regardless of what they deserve. Because I am honorable, I can extend honor to them regardless of, of what they deserve. And so now all of a sudden it takes the pressure off of well, my delight doesn't, isn't dependent on their behavior. My delight is dependent on who I am. And so if I am walking in a godly manner, if I'm following what the biblical instruction is for my life and I'm carrying honor, then it becomes a little bit more delightful to share that honor even if someone doesn't deserve honor. Does that make sense? Are you guys following with that? It is, it is uh, separate. The honor that we give is, is not dependent on what they deserve. And that's why we can find a delight in giving it. Because we have disconnected the expectation of, oh, he doesn't deserve it. She does. She doesn't. He doesn't. And, and when we disconnect that, it becomes a little bit more delightful to give honor. Because now our only expectation or condition is, I give honor because I'm honorable. So that's Romans 12. In 1 Corinthians twelve twenty two, Paul, again, writing to a different church this time, is talking to them about the different parts of the body. And he says in verse 22, he says, in fact, some parts of the body that seem weakest and least important are actually the most necessary. And the parts we regard as less honorable are those we clothe with the greatest care. So we carefully protect those parts that should not be seen, while the more honorable parts do not require the special care. So God has put the body together such that extra honor and care are given to those parts that have less dignity. This makes for harmony amongst the members so that all members care for each other. He's using the physical body and the way we clothe ourselves as an analogy for how we should honor others. That there are parts of our body that get clothed extra, and so even though they might have less dignity than the parts that you see, uh, they, they actually have even extra care. And so he's using this as a great teaching illustration that the people we often overlook should actually be the ones that we give extra honor to that myself or Pastor Marcus or Pastor Mike, because we have a very public position, because you see us holding a microphone, uh, it's easy to, to give us honor and say, oh, like, you know, that's the leader or he's a teacher or, oh, he leads worship. Um, but in fact, it's the people that, like, clean up our coffee spills and, like, vacuum our carpets and put the words up on the screen so that we can sing along with the songs. Like, those are the people that we should be showing extra honor to. But it's sometimes it's so easy to just honor the people with a public image or honor the people that we see on a stage or on a platform and so when they're writing, they're not you know yes, honor everyone, but they're even going back and doubling down that like those people that you're overlooking should be honored you know the The fifth through eighth graders that we sent out it's like, oh they're kids, and like let's you know let's get them out of here so they don't interrupt us but really like oh, we should be giving them the most honor because it's like, oh, how wonderful. Like, that's our future church leadership. Like, those are the people who are going to see God move in an incredible way. While, like, the rest of us, you know, ease into our, our golden years, like, they are going to run with a fervor and intensity that, that we've, we might have, have lost. And so we should give, give extra honor, not just to the people who are honorable, but even those with, with less dignity. When I think of dignity, I think of people who, who carry themselves well, um, sometimes it's easy to point at uh, public figures uh, because uh, we don't know them personally, and so it's easy to kind of throw stones in that direction. But uh, there are some public figures that are dignified, uh, they speak well, they uh, don't offend people regularly, and then there's just some brash people that go out and they say whatever's on their mind, no filters, and, uh, and sometimes we have to cover the little one's ears and say, okay, don't, don't say those things, like don't call people names like like he or she does. Uh, And we think that's less dignified, but the Bible doesn't draw a clear distinction of you should show honor to people who are only dignified, or you should show honor to people that only agree with you, or you should show honor to just the people that you voted in for office, but it's really clear you show honor to everyone, even those who don't have a lot of dignity. Because again, we are disconnecting how we ascribe honor. It's not because of what they deserve, it's because of who we are. In James chapter 3, it says, Sometimes it, talking about our tongue, praises our Lord and Father, and sometimes it curses those who have been made in the image of God. And so blessing and cursing come pouring out of the same mouth. Surely, my brothers and sisters, this is not right. So with our words, we either build people up or we tear them down. We ascribe blessings or we ascribe curses. But what's interesting here, and I highlighted it, is that um, those who have been made in the image of God Not only are we giving honor because we're honorable, we are giving honor because that person was made in the image of God. That person was made bearing the image of God. And so if we can't find anything else about them to honor, we can honor that. We can honor that they are made in God's image, that he loves them and cares for them. Whether they're enemies of God or friends of God, he still loves and cares for them. And so we can ascribe honor to them. Uh, and, And I think I have a note about this later in the in my notes, but um, sometimes uh, there's a, an argument about, oh, well, I honor the position, but I don't honor the person. What I think the biblical context presents is there is precedence to honor a person, regardless of their behavior and regardless of their conduct. We can still find something um, either in ourselves, because I carry honor, as, as someone who carries the kingdom of God, I carry honor, or that they are made in the very image of God. I can give them honor for that purpose alone. Um, and, and, and there is no need to separate, oh, well, I honor this position, but I don't honor that person. I think as Christians, we are called to live honorably. When Jesus talks about loving, uh, loving your enemy and praying for those who persecute you, I think that entails some measure of honor. And so I think there's this, this charge as people who follow Jesus that we need to honor others. So whether someone else is honorable or agreeable, dignified or not, thinks like I do, or doesn't, none of that matters. The only two things that matter in regards to how honorable I treat them is one, are they made in the image of God? And two, am I honorable? So that's, that now becomes our, our quick litmus test of, do I need to show this person honor? We ask these two questions. Are they made in the image of God? Yes. I mean, unless they're like from Mars and have like a green head and like 12 arms. Like, okay, they're made in the image of God. Yes, we need to honor them. Am I honorable? If yes, then we honor them. And those are the only two questions that matter. It it doesn't matter how did they treat us last week, do they vote this way or that way, it doesn't matter if uh, we like how they dress, or if they think like us, or if they talk like us. Those aren't the questions on this list. The two questions are, are they made in the image of God, and am I honorable? Now it's, it's obviously hard to give something away if you don't have it. So if you yourself aren't honorable it 's difficult to extend honor to other people, and so a big part of this is is understanding who God made us to be that we are sons and daughters of God that we're adopted into His family, that He cares for us, that He uh, has made us a, a royal priesthood that He has called us and, and set us apart, and that there is where we find our honor and so from that place we can create this culture uh, of honor we can we can extend the kingdom of God that carries honor and we can do those things because we know who we are our identity is Uh, rooted and grounded in the love of Christ Jesus. And so from that place, now I have honor, and I can give it freely. My honor doesn't come from how someone else treats me. My honor comes from how God treated me. My honor doesn't come from how my wife or my spouse or my boss treats me. My, My honor that I carry, I am honorable, comes from what the Bible says about me. Okay, so now jumping back, Exodus 20 said, Honor your parents, and 1 Peter 3 said, Honor your wife. And I have a little bit of a working theory on why we have to, on why the Bible gets real specific on honoring those types of people. I'm convinced that it is easy to honor the people that you see uh, on social media, you know, who are just posting the highlights. I'm convinced it's easier to to honor public figures who have a whole team of professionals carefully crafting their public image. But the people that you work closest to and live with and see the people who have to tell you to take out the trash, it's hard sometimes to honor those people. And so I think when the Bible doubles down and says, okay, honor everyone, and if you missed it, honor your wives, and if you aren't paying attention, honor your parents, and, and, it, and it goes on and, and it creates some of these specificities, I think it's because sometimes it's, it's harder to see them the way heaven sees them because we've seen so much of them in the natural. I think if we pray for for eyes to see people the way heaven sees them, that the way God sees them, the way Holy Spirit sees them, that would change how we treat them, that we would begin to find a delight in honoring them. So instead of seeing your spouse um, in their shortcomings or where they failed or fell short from your expectations that you probably didn't do a great job of communicating, uh, you can begin to see them the way heaven sees them. And instead of seeing your coworker in the way that they dropped the ball last week or they threw you under the bus or uh, they keep CCing your supervisor every time you mess up, and you're like, yeah, I know it, just tell me privately. Instead of those issues, you are seeing them the way heaven sees them. You're seeing them by uh, the prophetic destiny on their lives, of what they're called to, the, the truths that God is speaking over them, more than just uh, where you've uh, bumped into them, or, or bumped heads, or had fallings out. So are we honoring people because they look like us, or are we honoring people because they look like God? So it's easy and it's natural to, to kind of circle up in friends with people who talk like you or think like you or have shared experiences. But when we show honor to just those people, we're really honoring the me that I see in them. You know, uh, I see a lot of me in you, and so I'll honor that because that's the best, <laughs> you know? Like, like, I love me a lot, and so when I see it in you, it is easy to honor you, because I love me so much. But what the Bible calls us to do is to honor the God that we see in them, that we see them in the image of God, and we can, we can honor that about them. We can see that God loves them, and so we can honor that God, that you're something that God loves. Think about it, um, it I mean, I'm searching for an example and there's dozens of them, but either something that you love that your children know, okay, I can't break this thing because dad really loves it. I can't be reckless with this thing. It means a lot to to dad. I've got two daughters right now, uh, a one-year-old and a four-year-old. And sometimes the four-year-old will get a toy and she'll say, I don't want Francis, the one-year-old, to play with this. She'll break it. That's fair. That's true. We need to, you know, if it's fragile or whatever, we need to put it on a high shelf. We don't need to let her play with it. And the way that works is because she loves it and values it, the rest of the family now has to kind of protect that thing. If you see other people as God loves them dearly, now all of a sudden we have an obligation to to protect them and to cover them because that's something valuable to God. We're not going to speak ill about them or drag their name through the mud or be dishonoring to them. No, that's something special to the Lord. He loves them dearly. And so we need to, we need to be honorable about the way that we protect them and cover them and, uh, and treat them and regard them. One of my favorite things about the Bible is the New Testament uh, does a great job with the epistles of speaking really, of really clearly. And in terms of preaching, uh, it gives us a lot of great ammunition. You know, because I can point at 1 Peter 3 and I can be like, it says honor, or 1 Peter 2, it says honor everyone. Um, but the Old Testament is beautiful because it has all of this history and story and narrative where we can pull out, like, truths of God. And so in First and Second Samuel, we see the life of David. And even though there's not uh, one verse in there that says, like, and David taught the kingdom and said, you all need to honor everyone, even though there's not one of those, what we can pull from his story and from his life is how over uh, about two decades, he honored again and again and again. And when he had ample opportunity to dishonor, he still chose to be honorable. So let's take a look. In, in 1 Samuel 10, for those of you who are a little unfamiliar, I've, I've got this kind of overview so that we can see the life together and we can learn from it. In 1 Samuel 10, Saul is acclaimed king. Now before this, the, uh, the Israelites, the God's chosen people, had looked to God as their leadership and had heard from God through the prophets. So the prophets were kind of the go-between, um, and they would hear from the Lord and then they would speak to the people. And at this point in history, in 1 Samuel 10, um, the people are asking to have a king like the other nations. They're looking at their neighbors, and they're saying, Oh, well, they've got a king, and they've got a king, and they've got a king. They said, We want a king. We want someone human that we can, like, look at and see. And the Lord tells them, That's not a great idea. And they say, But we want it. And this is a beautiful, beautiful illustration of both God as a father saying, That's not a good idea, but I'll let you make your choice and then also the intersection of God's sovereignty and our free will, where um, the Lord is still going to lead the nation, but if they want a king, he'll let them have a king. And so we see this play out. Uh, And so Samuel kind of warns the people, hearing from the Lord. He says, hey, uh, a king's not a great idea. And they say, yeah, 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 give it to us anyways. It's like that third helping of dinner. And you're like, no, 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 I definitely want it. And then afterwards you're like, oh, I ate way too much. They said, we want it. And Samuel said, okay, fine. And so um, the Lord picks out the king for them. He picks out Saul. And he says, Saul is going to be your king. You ask for a king, here's your king. And so that's what we see in 1 Samuel 10. In 1 Samuel 15, Saul has been king for a little while. They've won some battles. They're doing okay. The Lord gives Saul some really specific instructions, and Saul blows it. He disobeys because there was some outside pressure, because the people wanted one thing, and he felt like he had to please them, and, and he was nervous. And so he makes a poor choice. Samuel, the prophet, who's hearing the Lord on his behalf, comes and says, you did a bad thing, and the Lord's going to take away his kingdom from you. And Saul freaks out, and he says, no, 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 I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Did that fix it? And Samuel said, no, it didn't. And he says, oh. And so he's sad, um, but, but Samuel makes this decree uh, in, in 1 Samuel 15. The Lord has rejected you as king. He's taken the kingdom back. In chapter 16, Samuel goes to a different town, and he anoints David to be king. They do this whole lineup. David has a bunch of brothers. Uh, David's the youngest, and they go through, and, and, and Samuel's thinking, oh, this guy looks like a king. No, this guy dresses like a king. This guy's like, got a deep, booming voice. Like He could be a good king. And each time, the Lord is like, no, 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 no. You're looking at the outside. I'm looking at the heart. And so Samuel's like, okay. So they finally get to David, and he's the youngest, and not the one you would have expected or picked, but he gets picked, and, and Samuel anoints him. Now, this isn't a public... Uh, public ceremony, like, like a knighting or like a uh, formal like, um, a crowning ceremony. It, this isn't that. This is kind of a, a private thing. Uh, it's almost like the equivalent nowadays of, of a, you know, a person of God saying, hey, I have this prophetic word for you. You're called to do this. So the, the Lord has anointed him. He's highlighted him. He's picked him. He's communicated it to David that you are the one. And he's even poured out his spirit onto him. But uh, he has not yet come into his position of kingship. He's not wearing the crown sitting on the throne. He's still tending sheep. So that's Samuel 16. In 17, David uh, shows up at the battle where there's Goliath. He's got the slingshot. A lot of you guys remember this story. He hits the giant in the head. He falls down, and it's a huge victory. Uh, the Israelites love David all of a sudden. And then in, verse, or in chapter 18, Saul becomes really jealous. Because some of the maidens in the city write this song that hits like the billboard top 100. And it's um, David, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. And this song becomes so popular that people in other countries uh, know it. And, and when, when David goes to the Philistines, they're like, isn't this one that they wrote that song about? And so it's interesting how like culture, the music was still very per, uh, pervasive. So Saul becomes jealous of David. And in chapter 18, he tries to kill him. Uh, he throws the spear at him twice, and both times David dodges it. And then in verse uh, nine, chapter 19, Saul tries to kill David again. So this is now uh, two attempts on his life, but three shots on goal, and, and David has sort of had enough. And so he has this discussion with Jonathan, and he says, hey, I think your dad's trying to kill me. And Jonathan says, no, my dad would never try to kill you. And David's like, I'm pretty sure And so uh, they devise this plan to kind of find out for sure, and so David hides out, and Jonathan makes an excuse of why he's not at this special dinner, and Saul loses it. He flies into a rage, and he's very upset. Uh, He says some really mean things to his son, Jonathan, uh, and I I believe he even tries to throw a spear at Jonathan. And so Jonathan rendezvous with, with David the next day, and he's like, yeah, it turns out my dad is trying to kill you. You were right. You should probably run away and lie low for a while. And so that's what happens. In, uh, in chapter 21, David runs from Saul, and he's now kind of on the lam, hiding out in caves and, and ditches out in the wilderness. He has left the, the people of God and the city of God, and he's now banished and exiled, not formally, but running for his life as a sort of like political refugee. The king's trying to kill him, and he obviously doesn't want to die, so he's running. Uh, while he's out there, a band of kind of rabbles sort of collect around him, and he sort of builds up this following, and they're living out in caves and hiding behind rocks. Saul is actively on the hunt for him with some of his, uh, some of his army, a kind of a what do you platoon or whatever. And they're, they're searching for him, and they're hunting him down. In chapter 24, David and his men are hiding out in a cave, and Saul is with his guys, and he says, all right, everyone stop, we're going to take a bathroom break. And they say, okay. And so he gets off and he goes into the cave and he's relieving himself in the cave. This is kind of a funny Bible story. He's relieving himself in the cave. And in verse four of 1 Samuel 24, this is what happens. It says, now's your opportunity, David's men whispered to him. They're in the very cave where Saul's relieving himself. And this has got to be scary because that's the guy who's trying to kill you And so some scout on your team says, oh, there's people coming. I think it's Saul. Like, let's all hide. And so they all hide. And they're hiding in the back of this cave. And then all of a sudden, who walks into your cave? It's Saul. And I'm sure their first thought was, oh, my gosh, he found us. And then all of a sudden, like, he starts doing his business. And they're like, oh, wow, I thought he was going to kill us. This is totally different than I anticipated. But they're whispering in the back. And one of David's men says, now's your opportunity. Today the Lord is telling you, I will certainly put your enemy into your power to do with as you wish. So with that in his head, David kind of sneaks up. But then, but then he hears the Lord, and the Bible isn't real explicit about this, but he, he realizes, no, I'm not supposed to kill him. And so instead of, of striking him down while he's relieving himself, he just cuts off a, a corner of his robe and then sneaks back into the cave. Saul finishes up his business, goes out and joins his men back on the road, David comes out, stands at the mouth of the cave and says, hey, like, I snipped off this piece of your robe. I could have killed you very easily, but I didn't because the Lord said not to kill the Lord's anointed. Uh, David says, I I know that I shouldn't kill who the Lord has anointed. Because if we remember back in 1 Samuel 10, Saul is the guy the Lord picked. And even though he spoke to Saul and said, I'm removing the kingdom from you and I'm giving it to someone else. And then David had the prophetic word. He had the anointing that you're going to be the next king. David still saw that this is the Lord's anointed, and I'm not going to take his life. And so he is showing honor to this person who is actively trying to kill him. And, and what's really um, kind of a, a side note, but really worth, worth discussing, is that this, this men, these men that were with David that said, hey, now's your opportunity. Today the Lord is telling you. They're speaking on behalf of the Lord, but that's not the Lord's voice. They're speaking on behalf of the Lord, but that's not what the Lord is saying. I think we should be very cautious, and we need to have discernment, because there are opportunities that will present themselves in our lives, and people, friends, well-meaning, who will say, oh, this is surely the Lord saying this, this, and this. And we need to be really careful to understand if that is, or if that is not, really what the Lord has for us. Because just because it's an open door, doesn't mean the Lord opened it. And just because it's an opportunity, doesn't mean it's from the Lord. So we Should be cautious about those. So uh, David's at the mouth of the cave. He says, hey, I could have killed you, but I didn't. Please stop hunting me. And Saul says, you're right, David. You're a good guy. I should stop hunting you. And so he goes away for a little bit. In chapter 25, Saul gives David's wife, who's uh, Saul's daughter. So this this adds even a level of complexity to the story. Uh, David is King Saul's son-in-law. And so he's actively trying to kill his son-in-law which would really make, like, the family dinners uncomfortable. If, if, like, you know, whatever strife you have with your in-laws, if they're not trying to kill you, it's not that bad. Like, it could be, it could be worse. So Saul takes his, his daughter, who, who had married David, and he, he takes her because she stayed back in town when David fled, and he gives her to another man. So this is just adding insult to the injury of, of David being in exile and running for his life. Now he's lost his wife. Um, And then in chapter 26, David has another opportunity to kill Saul. Uh, Saul is back chasing David again. Um, He can't stand it that David's still out there. Even though they had, you know, just a few chapters ago, they had this whole exchange of like, oh, you know what, you're a good guy, I shouldn't try to kill you. Now he's back trying to kill him. And he and his men, it's nighttime, they've uh, made camp for the night. And David's men uh, find them and say, okay, look, like, they're all asleep. There was supposed to be someone in Saul's camp keeping watch, but even that person had fallen asleep. And so here's what happened in verse 8. Abishai says, God has surely handed your enemy over to you this time. And he whispers it to David. And David sees they, they go down into the camp, and they are standing right next to Saul. And Abishai says, um, let, me, let me hit him with a spear. I won't have to strike twice. I'll get him the first time, and he won't get up. And and David says, no, 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 don't do that. And so they take uh, his water jug and I think his spear and they go and they leave the camp and they get up on the hill and then they wake everyone up. They start banging and hooting and hollering. People start waking up and David calls out the guard who's supposed to be protecting Saul and says, hey, isn't this his water bottle? Like, isn't this his spear? Like, we were down there. We could have killed you all and we didn't. Again, like showing honor to someone who did not deserve it, really. I mean, David's... David is choosing to be honorable because he's honorable and because that's the Lord's anointed. But Saul's behavior does not warrant or deserve this sort of treatment. But because David is honorable and because he's saying things from heaven's perspective, not in the natural, he's recognizing what the Lord wants. And he's even discerning when his well-intentioned friends are saying, oh, surely this is the Lord. Now, if I was David, I probably would have killed Saul the first time. I would have heard my friend, and he would have been like, surely this is the Lord. And I'd be like, you know what? You're right. Like, of all the caves in all the world, like, he came into this one, and now his back's to me, and this is going to be real easy. Like, I would have done it. And if not, the second time, I would have been thinking, you know what? This is probably, the Lord probably wanted me to do it the last time, and I didn't. So he set up a second scenario to like, hey, man, I gave you this. You didn't take it. Let me try it again. But David knew. He had discernment. He had the Holy Spirit, and he recognized, even when people were whispering in his ear, oh, surely this is the Lord. Oh, this must be the Lord. This opportunity, this is a a once-in-a-lifetime, technically, twice-in-a-lifetime opportunity, but surely it's from God. And David recognized, no, this isn't how I'm supposed to do it. We aren't going to touch the Lord's anointed. David understood that even when you disagree with someone's platform or their policies, um, all authority is, is established by God, even the authority that you don't agree with. Even the authority that's trying to kill you. And Peter understood that the same way. When he said, honor everyone, love the brotherhood believers, honor the emperor, or some translations say honor the king, that king was actively persecuting them. And he recognized that even when we don't understand it, all authority is established by God. Whether it's uh, Pharaoh and the Lord is using someone evil to establish his mighty hand, or it's Cyrus and, uh, and Nebuchadnezzar, evil kings, who then all of a sudden are having this encounter with the Lord and changing policy, um, who are we to tell God what he's doing is wrong or the person he picked is, is not who we would have picked and he's doing it wrong? That's a, uh, that's a dangerous position. That is boastful to tell the Lord, oh, you did it wrong. That's not who I voted for. You should have seen who I put down. So 1 Samuel 26, David spares his life. And then finally in 1 Samuel 31, uh, Saul dies in battle. Uh, he's been wounded and the enemy is closing in and he says, hey, uh, someone, someone hurry up and put me out of my misery because I don't want to fall into their hands and be tortured and humiliated. I want to die, and I want to die by like, my own team instead of by the, by the other team. And so he dies. That ends First Samuel, and in Second Samuel chapter 1, uh, David and his men learn of Saul's death. A messenger comes and finds David and says, oh, I've got great news. Your political rival opponent and the guy who's trying to kill you is finally dead and in verse 11 it says David and his men uh, tear this supposed to say tears I think it says tires. Tires? yep it's supposed to say tears David and his men tear their clothes in sorrow when they heard the news and they mourned and wept and fasted all day for Saul and his son Jonathan now we knew that uh, David had a special relationship with Jonathan they were really close they loved each other they were friends like brothers um, but this the bible's really clear that David and his men mourned Saul and Jonathan. Not just Jonathan, you know, it's not like, oh, they celebrated Saul's death, but they mourned Jonathan's death. They mourned both of them. They mourned Saul's death. And, and then in verse 14 and 15, David questions the messenger about not being afraid to kill the Lord's anointed because he asks him, he says, well, how do you know that Saul died? And he goes, oh, well, I was the one there who put him out of his misery. And David's like, oh, your own words condemn you. And so he has one of his men kill the messenger who thought he was bringing really good news and the news cost him his life. I think... This is part of where we get, don't kill the messenger. Like this is, he literally killed the messenger. But he was doing it because he said, you should have known not to touch the Lord's anointed. Like even if he was asking you to do it, you would have said, no, 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 like let's get help. Like let's call in reinforcements. Like let's do something. We're not going to give up. I'm not going to kill you. And David, who was actively being hunted and persecuted by by this guy, was sort of uh, getting revenge and justification and, and carrying out justice for him. And so it's interesting to see the perspective that David carried. It's interesting to understand, to see, and to read about what he understood about honor. That he's honoring this person that he didn't agree with, honoring this person who is awful towards him, and still honoring him even after his death. When he had ample ample opportunity to celebrate, he goes on in verse 17, he composes a funeral song for Saul and Jonathan. And then in chapter 2, David writes a letter to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, and he commends them for giving Saul a proper burial. Because after the Philistines uh, take Saul's body and they hang it on the wall to kind of humiliate the Israelites, uh, the men of Jabesh Gilead go back there and they take his body and they go and they give it a proper burial. David writes to them and says, hey, like, what you did was really good. Thank you for honoring him in a way that, like, no one else was able to. And so David was able to honor a political opponent who was trying to take his life and even by some interpretations defying the law of God because the kingdom had already been taken from him and it had been promised to David and so now now Saul was making himself an enemy of the one that God had chosen. So that's, that's obviously like kind of in contrast to the Lord's will, it would assume. Um, and so just because there's an opportunity, sorry. So this creates a lot of tension in our heart of seeing, you know, 1 Peter 3 and 2 makes it really clear, hey, honor these people. And we say, okay. But then when you see someone's life actually live it, you realize, oh, I might be falling short in some areas. I might not be doing this as well as I, as I should. And so when we hear honor, sometimes we just process that, process that through a lens of like, okay, I'm going to honor the people I agree with. And then we see, the, we see a life like David's where we realize, oh, you have to honor people you don't agree with. Okay, that's different. And then, you know, honor, okay, I'm going to honor the people that think like me or that I, I like. And then we see David's life and we realize, oh, okay, there's a lot more to honor than what I might have been doing. Honor doesn't deny the facts. David speaks plainly with Jonathan when he says, Hey, I think your dad's trying to kill me. Honor doesn't deny the facts, but honor looks for the truth. So David was able to anchor himself and say, Okay, that is the Lord's anointed, and I won't lay a finger on him. I'm not going to touch him. I'm not going to kill him, because the truth is that God anointed him. The facts are he's trying to kill me, so we are going to run. We're going to hide in caves. We're going to dodge spears. You know, it doesn't mean we just lay down and be like, oh, like, you can kill me. You're the Lord's anointed. Like, there's, there's a recognition of facts, you know, uh, in, in modern context. Uh, your platform is un- unbiblical, or the values you hold are, are in contrast to the values of the Bible or the values of God. We can, we can recognize the facts, but the truth is that we can still show honor. The truth is you are made in God's image. The truth is that you are someone that God loves, and we need to regard you as valuable. The truth is, you know, so we can find the truth even when the facts say one thing. You know, I, I, can, I can exercise my civic duty, and I can vote my convictions, and I can vote what, how the Lord leads me. I can do all that. Those are the facts. Uh, this person's platform lines up more with the Bible than this person's. And we can weigh that, and we can look at that. But the truth is that all people are worthy of honor. The truth is that we can honor because we're honorable and because of who God made them to be. We can uh, choose to see them differently. So the facts might be that the people in your life, let's, let's bring this home, let's not big scale everyone in politics, let's bring this home just to your family. The facts are that maybe you and your spouse don't always see eye to eye. The facts are maybe there's some stress uh, between you and your children. The facts are maybe your workplace feels like a toxic work environment. Those are the facts. The truth is that you can ask Holy Spirit, how do you see this person? How do you see this child? How do you see my spouse? How do you see my coworker? Father God, what do, you, what do you have to say about this person? How does heaven see this person's future? And we can stop regarding people based on their past, and we can start regarding them based on what heaven says their future should look like. And when we do that, honoring becomes a lot easier. Um, and so, uh, so we don't deny the facts, you know, if that person steals from you in business, maybe don't be a business partner with them, but we can still choose to be honoring. Um, If that kid is making really, really poor choices, uh, we need to do something in our parenting. You know, we need to try a different strategy. We need to switch up something, take away from some privileges, or okay, you can't hang out with these people, but we we don't turn off our honor. We don't turn off our love for them. Uh, We still show them honor, even when they're being real, real meanie heads. I've got a four-year-old, so that's a real meanie head, uh, and with your coworkers, like, okay, I hate going to this meeting, I don't like this person, yada, 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 we can still turn on honor, and we can still choose to honor them, because we're going to ask Holy Spirit, how do you see this person? How do you see that one? So that's your homework for this week. We talked about honor. you got to pick five people that you interact with regularly, and then you need to ask Holy Spirit, what is the gold that they have deposited in that person? You're going to ask heaven, how do you see this person? Because I'm seeing them in this way. We're looking in the natural. I'm seeing them like this. But heaven, how do you see them? Pick five people, write down their name, write down what heaven sees them. And then uh, the activation in this is you have to answer how will that revelation, whatever Holy Spirit shows you, how heaven sees that person or those people, um, you have to answer how will this revelation change how I interact with that person? Okay, so if, if I've seen them in this light, not great, they've hurt me, or I've been offended, or I don't agree with them, but heaven sees them like this. They're loved, they're valuable, they're actually called uh, to be really uh, loyal, and they're called to um, bring peace, and they're called to do these things. Now, how does that change how I interact with them? I will now be thankful when I see this attribute, or I will now celebrate this thing about them, or I will now encourage what God says about them that I haven't seen yet, but I know is in there. It's a seed, and I'm going to water it and give it sunshine so that it grows into the tree of their destiny or whatever, the You get it. So that's your homework, all right? Great. Let me pray for you guys. Father, we thank you so much uh, that you chose to honor us, that even when we were enemies of you, when we were dishonorable, um, when we did not deserve it, you extended honor to us, and you called us valuable, uh, and you called us into a future and a destiny. Thank you for forgiving us of all of our mistakes and our sins and our errors, and are falling short, where we have fallen short, I pray that you would now um, move in our hearts and give us heaven's eyes to see people the way that you see them so that we can honor them the way that you honor them. Lord, we thank you for this biblical precedent to honor everyone, especially parents and wives and loved ones and people in authority. I pray that you would help us to do it better. By you the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, I pray that we would live differently than the world that would love people who are like them but hate people who disagree with them. And I pray that we would find, um, find the strength of God to, to love and to honor even the people we disagree with, to love and honor uh, people on the other side of the aisle, to love and honor people in our workplace or our communities or even our families who have hurt us or rubbed us the wrong way or we don't see eye to eye with. Father, help us to see them the way that you see them so that we can love them the way that you love them. In Jesus' name, amen.